This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Hello. And welcome to My Favorite Murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. We're here to do true crime comedy podcasting for you, hopefully exactly in the way you like it. Exactly the way you like it. Nothing in, at all that upsets you no. or kind of irritates you. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Nothing that's like, oh, I don't know if I, but I'm going to go ahead and... No. None of that. None of it. It's going to be executed... In a Simone Biles perfection Ooh. style. Uh, landing it. We're going to stick the landing. Yes. And the middle. And then uh, not this beginning, but later. Yeah. And you're going to go, wow, they've been practicing. You're, like what kind of stretching? <laughs> what kind of uneven bars <laughs> have right. they been working out on? The muscles that they must have to uh, target. Is that a word? Is, Tar- yeah. It's mm-hmm. out of this world. It's imagine the amounts of Tiger Bomb those two are using <laughs> on these podcasting muscles. Going through every Monday. They must go through jars and jars. Jars and jars. And jars. How's, how's your week since we haven't seen each other, Ben? <laughs> we saw each other last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for the pretend oh, right, 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 right. Uh, week's been fine. Had the laziest weekend. Went to a two-year-old's birthday party, which is always hectic. Raging. Did you do so many lines of coke? <laughs> Did all the cocaine. <laughs> Two lines to celebrate my nephew's second birthday. <laughs> Don't you know? say it. Why? <laughs> it's cute. It's precious. That's right. That's an L.A. baby birthday. <laughs> what about you? What do you do? What are you doing? I was also at that baby birthday. You just couldn't see me because I was wearing my camouflage sweatsuit. Uh, just leaning against the bushes, watching your family. God, that'd be um, great if you did that. I have, let's, well, the big story that you got pulled into is that now it was like about 48 hours ago. My internet went out entirely. Yeah. My Wi-Fi, whatever it's called. Cable modems. There's a bunch of words people started throwing at me where well, I was like, I don't know. All the things you suddenly don't realize use internet. <laughs> yes. Like, and like, oh, that doesn't work either. Yes. <laughs> where I was like, I guess I could make a couple old fashioned phone calls and I can read a book. Yeah. And other than that, yeah. Netflix won't have me. Nothing, nothing yeah. on, that I, uh, no way I normally watch TV was available. I ended up that night having to watch regular TV. Ew. Your microwave is digital, too, so you couldn't <laughs> hook up to the Internet. Say goodbye to that popcorn dream. <laughs> um, yeah, I I was on straight up regular TV. How was it? I'm a fan. Like, I like the idea of being like, here's what's on. Pick one. Yes. I think it's good for I think it creates that feeling that you have stumbled upon something that's your personal favorite yeah. thing. Or like, hey, I forgot what kind of person I was 15 years ago. Yes. 
where <laughs> yes and i used to do this all the time yeah. like i've told you the story of when i lived in that horrible studio apartment with the cat so it was like we just lived in a cat box together me and the cat <laughs> oh my god um and i used to watch local news and the jamie fox show oh nice yeah. because that was basically what i could find because i couldn't afford one other thing to help no. me watch tv the only time i ever watched like cable like real paid for cable was when i had to always move back in with my grandma because <laughs> i was broke <laughs> couldn't afford three hundred dollars a month rent on yeah. my thrift store employee salary god the magic of like the 90s, 2000s, we didn't know how very much we were living off the fat of the land. Yeah. You could get a $5 an hour job and have an apartment. Yes, you could. And you would, your job, you could kind of get a job based on how cool you want it to seem. Like, totally. I'm going to work at this record store. Yes. Yes, I'll barely make any money, but I'll be at the record store. I'm the girl who works at the record store. And then, yes. And then somehow find money to go to the bar later. Yeah. Everything sucked and everything was dirty. You couldn't afford laundry, you know. No. And the laundromat was gross. Right. And you would, that would have to be like one big day where you were going to go down and do it all at <laughs> right. once. So right. you had to get, this was pre-Febreze. So you had yeah. to get creative about how you were going to not smell. But then for me personally in the mid nineties, like this was back when people still smoked in bars right. and I would smoke when I drank. So it was all covered up anyways. With just, just like pig pen with pig the pen. little dirty lines all around me. Follow this little cloud following me or <laughs> the 90s, the yeah. cloud of the 90s stink following you around. Yeah, bad attitude, <laughs> real sarcastic for no reason, mm -hmm. aggressively, aggressively unfriendly and you smell like camel lights. And also like your Mary Jane docks didn't look cute with socks. So your fucking shoes smelled so bad. So oh. you get to someone's house. You're like, we're in no shoes house. And you're like, well, you fucking hate my guts. And you want everyone to know how bad my feet smell. For, dude, that. Oh, no. Karen got so excited. Jesus. She knocks multiple drinks over. <laughs> Thank God this is indoor outdoor carpeting. <laughs> Thank God this is your house. And so you don't have to go. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Um, my, that was my in the 80s when ballet flats came in big oh, right, time. Right. Um, that's when I discovered I can't wear shoes without socks because oh. because of my foot smell. And it was so, the first discovery of it was so embarrassing. Yeah. It was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I remember mine. Yeah. Like it was. Um, and the first time I went to a place that I didn't understand was going to be a no shoes thing was a dance at a different high school. Oh, no. And we well, at least there's enough people there that they don't they're not going to point at you. No, no, no. But it was just the kind of thing of now I have to kick off my silver ballet flats filled with talcum powder. <laughs> oh, OK. I get it. I, I've told you that story, right? Was there, it was chatting about. Yep. Oh, my God. Just like, oh, well, there she is. <laughs> She's not making out with anyone from this school tonight. No way. She's not going to say I'm dating a guy from a different school. No, the Cardinal Newman boys would not have me. They just <laughs> Mine wouldn't pick me. was because I was a raver. So I would just dance in these cute, like, you know, tennis shoes all night, Adidas or whatever, without socks on because it didn't look cute. And they didn't have like peds or like shoes, like little socks back then. No. Guys, you don't understand. You fucking 20 year olds don't know what you had to live without. Yeah. The, the niches that have been filled since this time yeah. by the people who suffered because they didn't have them. Yeah. What do you need? Well, we created it for you. You're yeah. welcome. You want a sock that doesn't show so you don't look like a weird nerd? <laughs> you can wear your flats and still not have stinky feet. We got this. That's right. You want a perfect podcast that's a fucking 10 and we just <laughs> landed the intro to? You got it now. Here we go. We couldn't have done it then. <laughs>
Um, oh, I have a correction. Speaking of perfect landings. Yes. I fucked up last week. Hey, I have a corrections that's corner. how we do it. So it's perfect for us because that's, right. that's how we do it. That's right. Corrections Corner for Hillsborough. Uh, hiya, Hans. Oh, cute. I began listening to MFM in April 2020, just as the world had absolutely fallen apart. And it has helped me through that time so much. Since then, I finished my undergraduate law degree, finished my master's in law, and have just started as a trainee solicitor. It's lawyer in British. Correct. And you guys have been with me, supporting me every step of the way. So thank you. You're welcome. So starting with a nice compliment, and we're proud of... Softening us up we're, for the bad news. Brooke, we're proud of you. And here we go. Oh. I was listening to today's episode in which Georgia covered the Hillsborough disaster. Listening to this was the hardest episode I've ever experienced because it hit so close to home for me. My dad, Mark, is a Hillsborough survivor, having escaped one of the pens onto the pitch. Oh, so God. one of the people had to climb the fence. Oh. He was 18 years old at the time and was attending the match with his 16-year-old brother, my uncle Paul. He ended up becoming separated from Paul and had to get a coach back to Liverpool, not knowing whether Paul was alive or dead. Luckily, he was okay and had come home on a separate coach, but we can never forget the families that were not so lucky. He is still unable to talk about his experiences to this day. I'm sure. I do have a slight corrections corner to do with the story. You stated that... 96 people lost their lives on that day. However, this is not accurate. 94 victims lost their lives on the day, one, two days later, and Anthony Bland passed three years after the disaster. This was following his family's legal battle for him to be the first person in the UK to be allowed to die from withdrawing treatment. Recently, Andrew Devine was deemed by the coroner to be the 97th victim of the disaster following his death on the 27th of July, 2021, this past summer, due to the irreversible brain damage he suffered in the crush. I realize that this email is long, so even if you choose not to read it out, please recognize Andrew Devine and honor his memory as the 97th victim. Thank you for sharing the family's fight for justice. Despite the outcome of the trials, they have done our city proud. Then hashtag JFT97, which is justice for the 97, not mm -hmm. 96. SSDGM, Brooke from Liverpool. Thank you, Brooke from Liverpool. Yes. That's a crucial correction. Absolutely. And yeah. I appreciate you letting me know. What's up with you? What do you have going on in your lifetime? Well, I was going to ask you, have you watched any more Game of Thrones? I've watched a couple more episodes. So I'm on episode eight now. Uh, there's a lot of people and names, and I can't follow all of those things. Do you see why I sent you that thing? <laughs> I get it. Okay, I get it now. You truly, it's like you need the family trees. Yeah. Um, but I was going to ask you, have you gotten to the part where Peter Dinklage has to go to Mrs. Stark's yes. sister? <laughs> yes! <laughs> kid who's like trying to go oh, oh my god if you can if you can yeah oh my god the first time i saw that i was like they cannot be doing this on television like this is insanity it's the king boy it's the fucking shithead king boy king who's like a total little shit i love it it's He's an, a nursing 11-year-old. Yep. It is intensely disturbing, but also, you know, 
first of all, love a castle that's got a we will get rid of you forever hole oh. in the middle of the throne room. How do I remodel my house to have <laughs> one of those? Because epic. <laughs> so epic. What Do you remember what the boy said? It was like, we're going to make him go away or something. I don't remember, but he got so excited when they were going to kill someone. Yes. Like, so thrown down that pit. It was just like everything. And what I love about that show is like, so then you're in that scenario. It's nuts. You're freaking out. And then Peter Dinklage is like, yep, here's how we're going to handle this. Yeah, he's like, boss. He, it just shows how that character is so smart yeah. and so political Cunning. and gets, gets away and survives. He's a, such a survivor. Is this a spoiler that I need to make clear? So the little, uh, Lang, what's the, what's the king's wife's family? You mean Ned Stark's wife? No, no, no. The king, Robert, his oh, yeah? wife. Baratheon? No. Cersei? Her family? No, no, no. Yes, Cersei's family. Dude, <laughs> take all of this out. I'm really no, just trying No, you to... leave, Stephen. You leave every word of it in. The little fucking, the little page boy, uh, blonde king who becomes the king. The Joffrey. Yes. So he's actually the inbred son of yes, them. That's correct. Okay. That's what I thought. And he's very mad. He should be mad. I'd be mad at my fucking mom and dad if they were brother and sister. <laughs> it's pretty intense. It is. It's like, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, and the, I mean, yeah, we, I don't think we have to worry about spoilers because yeah. people, everyone's seen it. Come on. Oh, and but me. Right. Uh, and, um, and also it's just this kind of like uncomfortable reality where you're like, oh, this isn't, this is this weird world where you have to kind of adapt to these creepy cultures because yeah. that's not what i noticed when i started rewatching. is that's not the only family that has incesty things going on absolutely not so yeah it's just um what a what a show you know what it's taught me is that i don't give a fuck about sword fights like i truly <laughs> mute it and look away scroll instagram until the sword fight is over yeah. It is the most boring kind of fight to me. Clang. 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 Oh, duck and cover. Clang. Clang. <laughs> Coming <laughs> back. On. Have you gotten to the part with, um, shit, I'm not going to be able to remember her name offhand. The tall woman who is the sword, who's the knight that's protecting <gasps> Mrs. Stark. No. Oh, that, that, it, uh, okay, it takes it there. in this whole, okay. it actually changes that aspect of the okay. show where if you are not, medieval times oriented yes. you suddenly love it because there's a reveal and i'd like to make something clear the princess bride is one of my all-time favorite movies i could watch that i know every word to that sword fight that epic sword fight true not comedic sword fights <laughs> for the ever-loving shit out of me also the out. swords are different because the yeah. swords that they use in game of thrones are super heavy and the what they're like the ones in princess bride oh, are like this real thin ep gorgeous Oh, Epis or something. You. The I didn't know ones. you were a sword expert. Uh, these are the things I'm slowly going to reveal to you over the next 22 years. <laughs> Six <laughs> years <laughs> down. <laughs> 22 to go. 22. Can you believe we've been doing this for six fucking years? Can you believe we have to do it for 28 total? <laughs> Shit. Can you believe we're contractually obligated? <laughs> Um, by the government what if the government we are secret spies for the government we're definitely uh, like cia moles for sure i feel like saying a secret spy for the government is a, is not a is a negating thing it proves you're not 
what if we call ourselves secret squirrels like the cartoon do you think that yes. show or is that even deeper undercover yeah People now like, i'm confused even there's no way they could be spies yeah that's what you thought because we swear well you're <laughs> fucking idiots they laughed about it in episode whatever this is <laughs> but it turns out they were actually telling us the true easter egg it, that it, it's the truth right in your face you just don't expect it yeah well, that's your Game of Thrones corner. Thank I mean, you. I actually, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. Now that my internet's back, um, and my Wi-Fi, I'm going to go back to it because I paused it to kind of see, to wait and see, because I thought maybe she'll binge a whole thing and go crazy for it. But yeah, no, that's just HGTV. Yeah. If you want to binge, uh, love it or list it with me, <laughs> we can do that. Fucking love that show. I think you would like that show, actually. Is that the open floor plan one where everyone wants an open floor plan so they can watch their kids do homework while they cook? That's There's... actually HGTV. That's, that's the... not a actual. That's the motto that of HGTV. The entire, except for Cheap Old Houses, which is one of my, f- it's one of my favorite Instagrams and they got an, um, they got an HGTV show. Oh. That is just, they just go to old houses, like, crazy old houses that are all under a hundred grand in the middle of fucking nowhere and show they don't they don't buy it they don't show you how to change anything they just point out the special parts of it (gasps) and they go to people's houses who have bought cheap old houses and show you what they've done and how they've kept it classic yes it's just cheap old houses they're the loveliest people cheap old houses goes right on the list like it's shocking that they got a show because there's absolutely no open floor plan to be found right those old houses, having lived in one for a very long time. Where? Oh, in San Francisco? No, no, no. My old house in Burbank. Oh, where? No, no, no. We're talking like Victorians. Though. No, no. I, <laughs> not to say that I would ever be on cheap old houses, but I'm saying the floor plan would make no sense. Yeah. It's like, oh, here's a three foot hallway right. connecting the front bedroom to the back bedroom and a bathroom. But like, and you can't open both doors at the same time. No. Or you're blocked in. Yes. <laughs> It was clearly people were just doing their best with the space they had and the materials given. That's right. I respect it. But uh, but that sounds amazing because those are the kind of things like when when I was looking for this house, looking on Zillow and just seeing oh. seeing houses that like it. I mean, L.A. doesn't have as many of them because no. people it's if you, you know. go to San Francisco for a minute, I was like, what if Vincent I moved to San Francisco? And so I was looking for houses yes. and I'm just like. This is not fair. Why can't these be in Los Angeles? Because we ruined them because we put marble and beige and open floor plans on everything. On everything. People are like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make this wall all copper. Huh? (laughs) And then we're going to put in some skylights. So every day at four o'clock, the wall catches on fire. And that's the look. That's going to be the look this season, huh? It's going to be it and in. And then we're going to put marble with deep veining on every surface. There was, I, there was a house when I very first started looking that I was, that is basically what we're describing right now. Yeah. And the marble looked like 1,000 spilled cups of coffee. Exactly. Where I was like, this would stress me out. So it would never seem clean no, in here. It's hideous. It's crazy. It's... But I mean, but there's some people that are like, I'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. Hundreds of thousands. Also, of dollars. man, what? people love a tacky chandelier. Oh. Like chandelier. Totally. 
Your dog is licking my palm right now, and it's kind of adorable. These dogs are stressing. <laughs> there is a Aww. lightning. There was a thunder and lightning storm in Los Angeles. Out of nowhere. Of all places. I almost got my car washed today. That's how much I didn't <laughs> expect it. I mean, I'm lazy, so I didn't, but yeah. 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 Like, it was as if we were in, like, Kansas. It was the best. I love it. And these dogs are just like, sorry, we don't know what's going on. It was so, so cute when Cookie was like, I've never heard thunder before. Ugh. What is crappening? Was she, like, one ear up, one ear down, yeah. one ear turned to the side? She's like, Mom, what are you doing? She, like, thinks probably that I'm doing something. Yeah, she is. She's like, please, please stop doing that. <laughs> well, she's heard me fart before, so she's probably like, geez. Dang. What did you eat for lunch? <laughs> Landed it. 10 out of 10. Look at this Olympic style podcasting. Landing. Uh, Speaking of comedy. (laughs) You missed it. We're back. Tell your sister. We're back. You missed it. Tell your cool mom. And ask your grandma for her hometown story. Your grandma was a murderino long before anybody knew what a murderino was. That's right. And we appreciate her. Yeah. High five. High five. Speaking of podcasting, should we do exactly right corner? Sure. Hey, we have a net. We have a podcasting network because we thought we needed more jobs. Yeah, and decided and we were right. <laughs> and that's just what we needed. Turns out we need even more. <laughs> so we just want to highlight a couple quick of the podcast episodes that are up this week that we just are fucking obsessed with and love so much. All the podcasts on our network are just beautiful people doing gorgeous things. People we believe in, people that we're thrilled to be partners with. That's right. People who we invest in their talent because we know that they uh, have a future in this biz. Yeah. And, and we want to hitch our wagon to their star. <laughs> we don't want to grab on and pick, go for a ride. Come on. Um, so, Karen, do you want to announce? <laughs> oh, yeah. One of our favorite podcasts on this network is, <laughs> is Do You Need a Ride, which is my other podcast. <laughs> Oh, yeah, your third job. Uh, you can push him off. No, it's okay. He's Hi. just, he just won't stop. He looks like a seal. Um, He does. Lay down. Lay down. Frank is just kind of coming at Georgia in this way where he's staring like she owes him $5. It's insanity. Lay down. So this week on Do You Need a Ride with Chris Fairbanks and Karen Kilgariff, uh, we have the guest, the great Dave Holmes, whose podcast Waiting for Impact is about to come out next week. Ugh. And so he was a guest on Do You Need a Ride. He's the funniest. He's the man is just he knows how to podcast. He's, he's good at it. He's such a professional. So that's Do You Need a Ride. <laughs> and... um what else we but got? Check that out. And then the other one I want to highlight is cousin of the podcast. That's right. My actual seriously cousin, Dr. Dan Peters, his podcast, Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, that I just love so much. Um, this episode is called Embracing Culture, Food and Friendship with Karen Chan, who is this incredible former food blogger, attorney, mom and founder of this independent book publisher that creates children's books um, to increase representation of characters of color in the books children read. So it's a really important, wonderful, lovely episode. That's great. Parent footprint. And then also, you guys, it really helps the podcasts to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It just really boosts their visibility, which is so important for these podcasts that are just starting out. So like if you're listening on the, uh, for example, if you're on the Apple app, you just as you're listening, go up and hit that little plus then you're subscribed. Yes. It counts for something. It's that easy. And then you see all those stars that don't, that are blank. You hit them. Hit five. I mean, hit five if you want. I'd say. Hit Obviously, five. we what do you? deserve five. What do you? <laughs> 
Roger Ebert, hit you, five. Are you hold? Are you withholding your what love? If, what if you? Yeah, give it away. Give it away. Give it away now. <laughs> also, we have some beautiful merch. Uh, one of our newest designs. I don't know if you've seen it. It says "Look, Listen" on it, and mm-hmm. it truly is one of my favorite shirts that we've ever made. I love it. It's very camp. It looks like a camp shirt. Yeah. Um, there's a ringer. There's there's a couple different versions. But yeah. Take a look at that because it's a it's just a classic. Yeah. We have a lot of cute designs. We have a lot of cool ones coming out. And just so you know, we're not because we want a fourth job. Karen and I pick out every single design and every color of shirts and every type of like we're our hands are all over it. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, were you afraid people thought that we were? Yeah. We, were, we had some other people doing it for us. Yeah. So like, why would I care if you don't care? But like, we care. Oh, we care. Yeah. We touch every single piece of merch. <laughs> we fold it ourselves. We fold it. We ship it. <clears throat> why All right. am I yelling? That's our biz, right? <laughs> yeah. You okay, I don't know. What, I don't know how to help you, Frank. Frank won't stay. He won't leave Georgia's side in a way that is it's like um, she's an old farmer who died and he's sitting on her on her Aww, grave. Yeah. That's kind of way to come home. Except for he's panting and staring and it's super creepy. I'm All honored. he needs is a slice of Swiss cheese. <laughs> Little creeper. Swiss cheese pervert. I well, wish you I just made of- it creepy. So <laughs> thank you. I thought it was really sweet. And then you had to go and. All right. Should we get it started? Let's do it in here. Let's party on down. Okay. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder and here's the important note that promo code is all lowercase so go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level that's shopify.com slash murder again don't forget the code is all lowercase goodbye georgia have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant like perfectly scrambled eggs. Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. 
What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill. If you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom, it's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. All right, Georgia, Mm -hmm. I'm excited because this week I'm covering a story that's renowned that over the years people have asked us to cover over and over and over again. And I don't know why we haven't yet. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm doing it right now. Okay. And it is the Hinterkaifeck murders. Ooh, I saw your paper before. <laughs> I'm so bummed. You know, I'm tr- I was trying really hard. This is the first time I ever have known your story before you told it to me. Uh, well. Should I have pretended? Sorry. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> no. Shit. Fuck. So. Let's see. Yeah, this is exciting. This is definitely one of those stories that people are always like, when are you going to do this? Yes, please talk about it. Totally. The cool thing is when we come late to the table for stories like this, of course, almost every true crime podcast (laughs) has covered it. So there's so much research. Of (laughs) course, there's one million theories on Reddit that are fascinating. Yes. Um, Seem, you know, you read something and then you're like, ooh, and then somebody comes right in and like, this sounds like an urban legend. And then you're like, ooh, it does. (laughs) Um, So you get to have the whole journey of a a very old cold case that that is just probably never going to get solved. Yeah. So some of the um, sources on this case file podcast, it's case 124 Hinterkaifeck research and writing by Aaron Monroe. The Hinterkaifeck Murders, Horror on a Bavarian Farm by Arkham Rebel. That's darkideas.net. Hinterkaifeck Murders on uh, Wikipedia. Oh, I thought of a new segment for us, which is that I just hit random on Wikipedia and I'm going to read you the article. I love it. Okay. So much. We'll we'll start that next week. Uh, And don't start it on your fucking podcast. (laughs) I already, I'm sure there's a million people are like, hey, we do that. Uh, I just forgot that there's you. If you're bored, I, it's so weird. I literally was thinking we're like we're thinking about this the other day. Really? Yes. Like that. That's a thing. It's, it's such. A, I always get thing. I always get Wikipedia pages when I do it, and I'm like, oh, I have ten minutes to kill. Let's see what I can learn. Yeah. And it'll just be like, it's the flag of Finland or something. <laughs> where I'm like, okay, this is well, this is general trivia. Yeah. Um. Someday you're gonna pay Trivial Pursuit and need to know. Yeah, these things. Yeah, let's do it next. Let's do it next week for sure. Okay, great, perfect. There was a, a timeline of events that was all in German, and Jay translated it <gasps> using Google Translate, which Jay I absolutely love. And Google Translate, what a great pair! What a team! <laughs> what a team! And that was um, compiled by a man named Hans Richter, and it's the murder case of Hinterkaifeck. Uh-huh. So that's a www.hinterkaifeck/mord. Dot D-E. Where the hell? This is truly international. Don't, don't send people to spam pages. Sorry. <laughs> That's, you could, you could, um, go and get my really high interest mortgage. <laughs> Sorry. Mental Floss has an article called The Chilling Story of the Hinterkaifeck Killings, Germany's most famous unsolved 
Crime by Sonia Vitomsky. And all that's interesting.com, the gruesome tale of the unsolved Hinterkaifeck murders by Katie Serena. Uh, God, I love all that's interesting. All right. I, do too. I will tell you this, even though you know it. And <laughs> I so don't. does everybody else. I you haven't don't? read about it in so long. So this will be like a like a brand new thing. For okay. Me. We're going to visit it again for the first time. That's right. Let's go, let's also, go there. As, as I was uh, reading Jay's research, it reminds me a lot of uh the man from the train my oh. my book obsession that is the the serial killer that was going around america on trains killing families in their houses yeah. in rural america all around during the dust bowl right i think it was like late it was like turn oh, of the century yeah. my favorite time turn of the you century love that time man on the train no oh, internet <laughs> uh doo doo the book the man from the train. For someone who loves this book so much, I fuck <laughs> it up a lot. But that book is by the author Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James. And if you are looking for a true crime book that is going to be factually dense and yet absolutely horrifying as a story where you think, oh, my God, how do I never know about this? Read The Man from the Train. I will keep on recommending it until year 28 of this podcast. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But anyway, let's talk about this actual case. Okay. So it's the 1920s and farmer Andreas Gruber, who's 63 years old, lives and works at the Bavarian Hinterkaifeck farm located about 43 miles north of Munich, Germany. I'm going to totally go for it in all of my German pronunciations in this episode. I was impressed that you even the title was so well done. Well, it's called phonetic pronunciations. Oh. I mean, it's all there. But those, those Germans, the Germans. But also, it's actually it's not as if you really look at the word, it's not as confusing as okay. it seems. OK, um, yeah, go for it. Don't let the umlauts fool you. <laughs> the German language is very accessible. She said, knowing no words in it. Okay. He shares this farm and home with his wife, Zazelia Gruber. She's 72. Oh, a little bit older. I like it. Their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabriel, who's 35, and Victoria's two children, Cecilia, who's named after her grandmother, but she goes by the name Seely. So I'm going to call her Seely for the rest of this. And a little boy named Joseph, who's two. So Thursday, March 30th, 1922, Andreas is outside on the farm and he notices human footprints in the snow leading from the forest, which is called the Witch's Wood. Oh, chill. Which is right, like basically next to their property. There's just this little forest sitting there called the Witch's Wood. Cool, cool, cool. Jay sent this to me earlier. Because I said, could you please write up a summary of the witch's wood and all the hideous things that have happened there? And he's like, I can't find any information on the witch's wood. Oh, he said. But I am seeming that the German name for witch's wood is Hexenholz, which objectively rules. (laughs) (laughs) Hexenholz is your death metal band. Hey, there's a gig tonight in witch's wood. Bring all your white makeup. Okay. So these human footprints um, go along next to the property up to the the farm's machine room where all their, their big, you know, machines are. But there's no footprints leading back to the woods. Uh-huh. So Andreas follows those. He discovers the lock on the machine room's door has been broken. But he looks inside. He finds no one. And there's nothing out of place. 
Later that night, while the family's sitting at home, Andreas and everybody hear what sounds like footsteps in their attic. Uh, He goes up there to investigate, looks around, finds nothing. The creepiest part about both of these incidents is that he's being watched. Like, we know now that someone in the dark recesses. Yep. Of witches would. Is watching him walk around those places. Yep. Yes. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. Okay. Could you move into a farm next to a place called Witch's Wood, <laughs> do you think? I mean, the first part, the farm part, is a hell no. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Then it's then it's off the table it's entirely. It's not a problem here. Okay, got it. Though the footprints, the broken lock, and the sounds from the attic are all odd, there's nothing missing, so Andreas isn't too concerned. And their small village is a very safe place where everyone knows everyone, so he tells a few neighbors that these weird things are happening, but he decides not to report it to the police Uh because he doesn't think there's really anything to report. A little less than two weeks later, on Saturday, April 1st, 1922, two coffee salesmen, Hans and Edward Shirovsky, show up at the Hinterkaifeck farm to take the Gruber's coffee order. That's a double (gasps) duty. Two people need to do that. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, we need a pumpkin spice latte, venti. They're so specific on their coffee orders. I love the idea in 1922, they would come and make sure that you had coffee at your house, at your farm. Yeah. Okay. They knock on the door and the window. No one answers. They look around the property. There's no sign of anyone being at home. All they see is the gate to the machine house open. So they leave without investigating any further. They're just the two coffee salesmen. It's, you know, hey, M- man, MYOB. None of our business. Exactly. So another three days go by and the school teacher notices that Seely is absent from school. And not to mention the entire Gruber family was absent from the usual Sunday services at their town church. Mm. Now, Victoria actually is nicknamed the Lark because she has such a beautiful singing voice. Mm. And so she is especially missed by her church choir. Then on April 4th, 1922, a local machine assembler named Albert Hoffner goes to Hinterkaifeck at 9 a.m. for a previously scheduled appointment to fix what is called the food chopper engine. Now, sure. I text Jay and I'm like, this is this has to be a translation issue. (laughs) Please find out what a food chopper is, because I Not that I'm a big farmer or anything, but I did grow up in a rural area. No one ever talked about fixing the food chopper (laughs) unless they meant a Cuisinart. So what is happening? Or sharpen a knife to sharpen the knife. (laughs) And he basically said what they did was they took composty type stuff Uh or stuff from what they had sown in the fields. Yeah. And this was a machine where they could throw anything in there and it would basically become the feed for the animals. So it was a Cuisinart. It's like a giant farmy. Cuisinart. It's Animal Farm Cuisinart in Yoy. So Albert waits about an hour for Andreas or anyone from the Gruber family to greet him, but no one shows up. He only hears um, the farm animals and a sound of the dog barking, but there's no sign of the Gruber. So he finally decides he'll just go fix the food chopper by himself, get it started. He works for about four and a half hours. He doesn't see anyone from the family the entire time, and he leaves at 2.30 p.m. But as he's leaving, he notices the barn, which had been closed when he got there, is now open. Uh -uh. And he also notices that the dog that had been inside the barn barking is now tied up by the front door. So he thinks one of the Grubers has come home and he's now confused as to why they wouldn't come and say hi to him because yeah. they he had an appointment to come and fix the food chopper. Yeah. So are you mad at me? Yeah. Um, 
So now the whole town is wondering about where the Gruber family is. So around 3.30, one of the neighbors named Lawrence Schlittenbauer sends his son, Johann, and his stepson, Joseph. So Johann's 16, Joseph's nine. Okay. They go over to Hinterkaifeck to see if they can find the Gruber family. They soon return to say the same thing everyone else has been saying, which is that farm is deserted. Mm-hmm. But this makes no sense to Lawrence. So he grabs two other neighbors, Michael Paul and Jacob Siegel, and the three go back over to Hinterkaifeck. And they try opening the front door of the house. It's locked. So they go around back to the barn. This is a big L-shaped building. Uh And their house, like the living quarters are in the front part. And then there's a connected area that connects them to all of the animal stalls Uh and then the back barn area. So it smells great. It's, uh, it's all super cozy and everyone, (laughs) everyone's all together. So they, They try opening the front door. It's locked. They go back around to the barn and they try to get into the house through the connecting door, through Uh the barn. And as they walk through the animal stalls, they stumble over an old door that's laying on top of a pile of hay. Then Michael sees a foot sticking out from under the door. So Lawrence pulls on it and reveals the lifeless body of Andreas Gruber. The men lift up the old door and they find three more bodies, Cecilia, Victoria, and the seven-year-old Celie. Oh. Horrible. Mm-hmm. The three men rush inside the main house through the connecting door, looking for two-year-old Joseph, hoping that he's still alive. They run into Victoria's bedroom, only to find him dead in his bassinet oh. with a terrible head wound oh. and one of his mother's dresses laid across him. Oh. So they search the rest of the house, and to their surprise, they find even another body, a woman lying on the floor in a pool of blood, covered by a blanket in the second bedroom. And she's soon identified as 44-year-old Maria Baumgartner. She had just been hired as the Gruber's new maid. She'd only arrived, uh, I think, the day before. So she had truly just gotten there to start this job. After searching the entire house, Lorenz Schlittenbauer (laughs) decides to stay and guard the property while Michael Paul and Jacob Siegel run to get the police. So I'll tell you a little bit about this farm and the family. So the farm's situated between two towns. So it's southwest of a town called Groburn, and it's north of a town called Kaifak. So uh, the name Hinter Kaifak literally translates to behind Kaifak. Oh. Um, so that's why they call that farm that. Then Witch's Wood, my favorite place in the entire world that I want to go to so badly. <laughs> I'm going to retire to. Is a, <laughs> right in the center of. It's a forest that sits between Groburn and Kaifak, right along the southeast corner of the farm. And so Cecilia Gruber, she inherited the farm when she was 35 after her first husband died in on May 21st, 1885. And she soon after started a relationship with the Hinter Kaifak farmhand, Andreas Gruber, who was 27 at the time. Mm-hmm. They married... Um, a year later, on April 14th, and they went on to have three daughters, but only their oldest, Victoria, survives into adulthood. Man. So it's hard, hard living. Yeah. Andreas is a hard worker. He doesn't hesitate to help others um, with their neighboring farms, but he does have a very dark side, very disturbing huh. what's found on this farm. Uh, he's very physically abusive to his wife, and rumor has it that the other two daughters died young because of his abuse and his and starvation that oh, they suffered. Shit. Um, and to make matters worse, in 1903, when Victoria's 16, 
She tells a neighbor, Mrs. Schlittenbauer, that her father is raping her. Oh, my God. She hates to be around him, but she has nowhere else to go. So she stays on the farm and she she basically works really hard on that farm. Yeah. She keeps herself busy by singing in the church choir and she hangs out with friends as often as she can. Mm -hmm. In April of 1914, when she's 27, Victoria marries a man named Carl Gabriel. So... Uh, Cecilia gives the newlyweds the deed to the Hinterkaifeck farm, but she and Andreas will continue to live there. Mm -hmm. It's clear that Andreas doesn't like Carl. Carl complains that Andreas constantly bullies him and denies him food. It seems pretty, pretty rough yeah. in that household. It, it causes problems in Carl and Victoria's marriage, but ultimately they work through it. They have a daughter together, Celie. But then Carl leaves to fight in World War One, and it's when Victoria is still pregnant, and he dies a month before Celie's born. Oh, man. So Victoria and Celie are the sole owners of the Hinterkaifeck farm. In 1915, six months after Carl's death, both Andreas and Victoria are convicted of incest, taking place between 1907 what? and 1910. Yeah. And this is the most fucked up part about it victoria spends a month in prison wow so she's arrested with her father as if she is somehow you know what i mean it, oh it's so it's God. really fucked up yeah. and very upsetting twisted she's in in prison for a month andreas goes for a year and after they're released they both go back to hinterkaifeck and oh, yeah that's tragic so then three years later victoria gives birth to Joseph. Oh. And on the birth certificate under father, the initials LS are listed. But Victoria has no known official relationship with anyone at the time. Of course, it's, you know, the yeah. 20s. It's rumors begin to circulate about Andreas being the father, but no one ever finds out the real identity of Joseph's father to this day. Wow. No one knows. Okay, so now we're back to the investigation. Okay. So word about the situation at Hinterkaifeck spreads through the town like wildfire. And by six o'clock, townspeople show up in droves, mm -hmm. which was the thing that used to happen back then. Yeah. And Lorenz is the one who stayed behind to protect the property. Right. He starts walking people through the house and giving them a tour of the crime scene. Dude. Yeah. Look over here. Look over there. Touch this. Also. Take that. There is dead two-year-olds in <sighs> in a bassinet like oh, that's what in the hell it's it's horrifying so someone suggests to him that letting people in before the police get there is maybe a bad idea but strangely calm lawrence just says it's too late they're already here anyway uh -uh. one visitor even goes into the kitchen and makes themselves a snack Do, i'm sorry hold, pause on that what the fuck right now, hey, I'm hungry after that tour. I don't, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, which is entirely made up by me, but it's like, you know, it's hard times. It's way back in the day. Yeah. People are, you you know, when you work on a farm, you see death every day. Right. It, at least animal death. Yeah. So maybe they're a little bit uh, like kind of just numb to it maybe I, maybe a little more I, yeah you don't want a snack after you fucking see a, dead a whole body. family oh, murdered family. a whole family slaughtered murdered. okay so 
we've both decided this that was a bad thing that that person did. <laughs> when the local police do finally arrive, they quickly realize they're in over their heads. Not only have all these town people walked through the crime scene, but Lawrence and Michael have moved the bodies from their original positions so they can only piece together what the original crime scene oh, looked like. Suspicious. Right? I don't like it. I don't like that at all. So they call in the Munich police for help, who show the next morning on April 5th, 1922. An investigator from the Munich police named Georg Reingruber. Look at me. Doing, doing it. Great. He leads the investigation. And here's how he does it. He takes a quick look around. He decides it was a robbery gone bad and he leaves. Goodbye. Give me a snack. Goodbye. I mean, so basically the other officers that are still there, they continue to dig for clues. Mm -hmm. Luckily, inside the main house, investigators find a large sum of money and lots of jewelry. So that quickly rules out this robbery gone wrong theory. Plus, the only room in the house that appears to have been ransacked is Victoria's. But with the entire family dead. No one can be sure if anything of value is missing. Right. When the investigators go up into the attic, they find a bunch of hay strewn around on the floor. Mm. This leads them to deduce two things that one or possibly two people have been sleeping in the attic Uh. and that they put that hay down possibly to mute Uh. their footsteps on the floorboard. Creepy. Yes. So they spot a rope tied to a crossbeam that goes along the attic ceiling and it goes out a window Uh and then they notice outside the window that there are shingles that are broken indicating that someone or several people Uh have accessed the attic by way of the roof oh no lock all your windows even if you're like it's the third floor no one can get in also if you're checking around and maybe it wasn't there when andreas checked it the first time yeah but like if you hear footsteps anywhere you you know, they're footsteps. They're probably footsteps. Even if you don't see people, look for things that would enable people to be there. Yeah. Straw, rope. Yeah. Are those at least two weapons from the game clue? <laughs> a pipe. <laughs> pipe, a pile of straw. A pile of straw, you know, <clears throat> a pair yeah. of knitting needles. So, court physician Dr. Johann Baptist Aumuller mm. <laughs> conducts the autopsies on all these victims. So 72-year-old Cecilia has been strangled and her skull has been cracked. He counts seven blows to her head. Jesus. Victoria's skull is also smashed and she has nine strange star-shaped puncture wounds and signs of blunt force trauma on the right side of her head. Now, this is really horrible. The skin on Andreas's face is shredded and bloody and his cheekbones are actually sticking out like his face has been mauled. Yeah. And Celie's jaw is smashed. She has open circular wounds on her neck and face. And Dr. Almuller concludes that the older three victims in the barn died instantly, but they find tufts of Celie's own hair in her hands, which they believe means that she suffered maybe even for hours in pain and duress, either seeing her family get murdered or being tortured. They're not sure. Oh, my God. And then inside the house, both Joseph and Maria had very similar wounds, uh, both died by blows to the head that left their skulls shattered. So it's very up close, personal Horrifying M.O. Brutal. Dr. Almuller also concludes that the killer or killers must have lured each of the four members of the family into the barn one at a time. Wow. 
So the theory is that after the first person was attacked, the second person came out hearing their screams, Mm -hmm. followed by the third and then the fourth. But when police test out whether shouts in the barn can be heard from the living quarters, it turns out the sound doesn't travel that far. Another theory is that the killers may have let various animals out of the barn to draw mm-hmm. everybody out one at a time. Mm-hmm. But that's sin- so sinister. Yeah. That idea. And then the maid stays, ba- stays back with the baby. Right. Uh, a search around the Hinterkindfack grounds proves fruitless. A recent rainstorm melted most of the snow. So even a canine team can't find any clues, right. or sniff anything out. And with no murder weapon and no strong leads, police interview the Gruber's neighbors and other people close to the Gruber's, including their previous maid, who was named Kreshans Rieger, um, trying to piece together the events that led up to this murder. Mm-hmm. So basically, Kreshans Rieger is 23 years old. She's hired as the Gruber's live-in maid in November of 1920. But during her time with the Gruber, she sees the worst of Andreas's disgusting behavior. <sighs> she witnesses him lock Victoria in the closet um, to prevent a suitor from proposing to her, uh, stating Victoria will be his and his alone for as long as oh. he lives. Another occasion, Crescens act- accidentally walks in while Andreas is raping Victoria in the barn. Oh. She also hears strange sounds coming from the attic, and she has the persistent nagging feeling that she's being watched. Oh, dear. She soon becomes convinced that Hinter Kaifak is haunted. But when she reports this to Andreas, he dismisses the whole thing. He doesn't believe her. In August of 1921, just 10 months after she starts working with the Grubers, Krashans quits six months before the Gruber family is murdered. Mm. So she kind of had just worked there. Yeah. And then months later, in March of 1922, various neighbors recall that Andreas mentioning some strange happenings on the farm. Mm-hmm. First, um, one of the two front door keys goes missing. And then secondly, a Munich-based newspaper arrives on the front porch of the house. But the problem is, Andreas doesn't subscribe to that newspaper. Creepy. When he asks the postman about it, postman says that he didn't deliver that newspaper. And no one else in the area subscribes to it. Then Andreas notices scratches on the lock on one of the sheds, indicating someone had tried to break in. He searches the property to see if he can find the intruder, doesn't find anybody, doesn't find any other clues. Soon after, Andreas finds the footprints in the snow leading from Witch's Woods to his machine room on Thursday, March 30th. He spots his neighbor, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, out in the fields. And so he decides to go tell Lorenz about these creepy things he keeps finding. Yeah. Lorenz says that uh, he hasn't seen anything suspicious, but he offers to call the police for Andreas. But of course, then Andreas turns him down, saying he can protect himself, but mm-hmm. probably doesn't want the police anywhere near his house. Sure. And then so here I wrote, here's me in that situation. If that's if I offered to call the police for someone there, like, yeah. yeah, I can do it myself. And it's like, OK, then shut up about it. <laughs> like, why you bring it up to me? I'm trying to help you. I feel like I would call the police because them saying they don't want me to call the police is suspicious. Yes. Let's turn all the neighbors against all the other neighbors. <laughs> Okay, that same day, March 30th, Victoria meets with a woman named Francesca Schaefer. And so basically, the Grubers are trying to hire a new maid. Francesca says her sister, Maria Baumgartner, will take the job. Although Maria suffers from both mental and physical handicaps, um, they're minor. She needs the work and Victoria wants to hire her and, yeah. and lets her sister know that she would love to hire her. 
But when Victoria returns home with the good news, Celie would later describe to a school friend that her mother got into a violent quarrel after that. And after that quarrel, Victoria disappears and is later found in Witch's Woods. Oh. Where there's a staircase underground. I made that up. Where does it go? The next day, March 31st, 1922, around five, Francesca arrives at Hinterkaifeck with Maria and drops her off. And as she's leaving, Maria runs back out to hug her sister one last time before saying goodbye and starting the job. So Francisca Schaefer is the last person to see Maria and the Gruber family alive. Wow. So when investigators put together a timeline of events, uh, they suspect the murders must have taken place on Friday, March 31st, 1922, between 8 and 11 at night. But in the days between the murder and the discovery of bodies, it is apparent that someone was on the farm tending to the animals and keeping a fire going inside the house. Oh, yep, diabolical. So around 1130 that night, a local named Michael Plockle uh, reported seeing a stranger burning something foul smelling in Hinterkaifeck's outdoor oven. When Michael tried to get a better look at the man, he the man shined a light toward Michael, obscuring his view. Oh. So Michael fled the scene. Um, and then in the early morning hours on Saturday, April 1st, a local farmer and butcher named Simon Rieslander is heading home when he sees two strangers at the edge of Witch's Wood. And when they see Simon, they quickly turn away so he can't see their faces. And it isn't until days later when Simon suspects they could be the culprits. Mm -hmm. So Lawrence, Michael, and Jacob are among the first people interviewed, right? Because they're first on the scene. Mm -hmm. And they discovered the bodies. Uh, But Lawrence is quickly singled out when Michael and Jacob report... Lawrence's odd behavior. They both report that Lawrence was strangely stoic upon seeing the Gruber's dead bodies. Also, when questioned by police, Lawrence Schlittenbauer swears up and down that he didn't let anyone into the house after he, Michael, and Jacob discovered the bodies, Mm -hmm. but several other witness testimonies, along with obvious physical evidence, prove otherwise. It's soon discovered that Lawrence's connection to the Gruber family goes beyond just being neighbors. In 1918, after his first wife passed away, Lawrence and Victoria begin, as the Germans like to say, hooking up. <laughs> and then I looked up uh, the translation for friends with benefits. It's Hunde mit Rotlin. Wow. Not really. I don't think it really sounds like that, but I'm impressed, though. Okay. A year, I'm trying to make this feel legit um (laughs) i'm trying as hard as i can a year later in 1919 her son joseph is born victoria's son joseph is born and the ls listed on the birth certificate could stand for and probably stands for lawrence schlittenbauer got it so michael and jacob also thought it was strange that lawrence would run into the living quarters so quickly after finding the first four bodies Almost as if he knew there was no killer inside the house. Okay. Right. Um, in the moment, Lawrence explains that he wants to, quote, find his son, indicating oh. that he believes he truly was Joseph's father. Yeah. But with the rumors of Andreas's rape of his daughter now confirmed to be true, there's a chance that Joseph was actually Andreas's biological son. Yeah. 
Not to mention Lawrence was the man who had proposed to Victoria when she got locked in the cupboard by her father. Okay. So given all this, Lawrence would have a clear motive to seek revenge against Andreas and his family. But why her? Yeah, right? And why his son? Yeah, just the dad. Just the creep fucking piece of shit dad. Right. But here's a possible theory. Yeah. Um, Lawrence had been under immense stress in his personal life because he had since married another woman. They had a baby who passed away only a few weeks after it was born. Mm. But, you know, yeah, that usually doesn't grief usually doesn't make people kill a family. So who knows? Still, police can't find any hard evidence tying Lawrence to the crime. Um, He says he's a happily remarried man. He has no reason to harm the Grubers. And police chalk his odd behavior up to being in shock, which is very possible. Yeah. Um, and his knowledge of the farm layout due to his relationship with Victoria. Sure. So he knew where to go. Sure. Lawrence was cleared of the crime. But of course, as it will happen, townspeople, the, so, some townspeople maintain their suspicions about him. Yeah. He files several civil suits for slander against townspeople and he wins everyone. Wow. So he was like. Yeah, you can zip it. Yeah, stop talking shit. So three years later in 1925, a neighbor reportedly sees Lawrence visiting the Hinterkaifeck grounds and they strike up a conversation and Lawrence makes a comment about how the killer or killers couldn't bury the bodies at the time of the murder because the ground was frozen. Mm-hmm. Well, that could be true. Could be true, but it seems incredibly suspicious to the neighbor yeah. uh, because Lawrence also farmed the same land. So the neighbor is incredibly suspicious about this. Yeah. Uh, But because Lawrence farms the same land, he would know exactly what the state of it was. It wasn't like he had no other experience with it. Um, And then years later, Lawrence dies in 1941 and he is never officially tied to the murders. So investigators and um, their second and most short lived theory is that the murderer was actually Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, who was reportedly killed in December 1914 in a shell attack in France um, in World War One. But his body was never recovered. Mm. And so they theorized that because of Andreas's um, incestuous crimes. Yeah. That. Carl survived the war and came back to seek his revenge. Now, but it doesn't make sense uh, because, first of all, there's many soldiers who report having seen him die in battle. Yeah. And just because they couldn't recover the body. Again, it's like just kill the dad. Like whoever right. would kill young a baby. No, it doesn't. It, that wouldn't make any uh-uh. sense at all. Unless, you know, he comes back and sees that she's had a baby with someone else. And kills but, his own daughter, too. Yeah, yeah it doesn't. It doesn't hold up, really. Carl's body is never recovered, but he was officially confirmed deceased by the Central Prosecution Office for war losses and war graves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the third theory is that the murders... um were an act of murder suicide mm-hmm. so because of their horrible family secret of andreas raping his daughter mm-hmm. and the fact that it became so well known um that you could theorize that he wiped out his whole family before taking his own life out you know shame deep-seated yeah. guilt the, the whole um rage he sounds like he had a rage issue maybe he killed everyone and then was like well 
to kill myself too. Right. Then they, people who have that theory are like, well, you could also say Victoria could have the same, um, motive because she possibly mothered his child and was yeah. abused by her father for years. Maybe she reached a breaking point and decided to just end the family suffering, including her own. But yeah. the only problem with these theories is none of the wounds of any of the victims could have been self-inflicted. And on top of that, a year later in 1923, the Hinterkaifeck farm building is torn down. And in the demolition, they find murder weapons. They find mm-hmm. what's called a mattock, which is basically it, it's a pickaxe multi-tool. So it looks like an axe on one side mm-hmm. and like a kind of a... So like a hoe thing on the other. Yeah. So you could like use either side. Yeah. And then a pen knife. And they're found covered in blood and buried beneath the attic floorboards. Whoa. Yeah. So you couldn't. Okay. So there's no way that either of those people could have gone and hidden right. the murder weapons in the attic. And it's interesting that they're hidden in the attic where right. people were hiding right. or theorized are hiding. Because then it would make sense. They would go back and put them in that place. Yeah. Um, also the mattock has a star shaped bolt on it that matches the puncture wounds found on some of the victims. A neighbor confirmed that the mattock was Andreas's and he had actually made it himself. So after ruling out suspects that were close to the family, investigators look around for strangers who could have done it. Um, and one of the notable suspects is Joseph Bartle. In 1919, just a few years before the murders at Hinterkaifeck, Bartle had robbed uh, a family 13 miles away in the village of Ebenhausen. He was captured. He was sent to a nearby insane asylum in Gunsberg. Um, but he escaped in 1921. Given his mental instability, investigators and witnesses find it plausible that Bartle would commit the crime and then stay at the farm af- for days afterwards, mm-hmm. tending to the cattle and making himself at home. But they could never find any hard evidence against him. It's all circumstantial based on his record and proximity. And they also can't find him. So, yeah. So he's, they basically, he's clear to the crime. They also look at brothers Carl and Anton Bickler. According to the former maid, uh, Anton worked on the Hinterkaifeck farm during the potato harvest of 1920. And his brother was also a farmhand, but he was lazy. Carl was lazy and Anton was not. Um, so the maid says that Anton had a particular interest in the Gruber family. Other sources say that Carl had the idea to scare the family into giving them their money by killing Andreas. Um, hmm. So police go back to Simon Rieslander, the butcher and the farmer, uh, to ask him about the two strangers he saw early that morning mm-hmm. um, near the witch's wood they they show him pictures of the Bickler brothers and say, um, could these be the men you saw? And he says, it could be, but yeah. I can't know for sure. On May 2nd, 1922, a police report is made saying Carl purchased a drug to knock out the family dog. And that's enough to lead to his arrest on May 5th, 1922. Uh. But Carl has an alibi saying that he was working on another farm at the time of the murders and he has witness testimony confirming that alibi. So he's released um, like six days later. Huh. Uh, and the dog never barked yeah. at Anton. So if they had partnered up for a crime, Anton could have just calmed the dog down himself. Right. They didn't need to drug it. Okay, so then 20, 
or so years later, a woman by the name of Crescentia uh, Meyer, she's on her deathbed and she makes a final confession to her priest. Mm. She says brothers Adolf and Anton Gump are responsible for the murders at Hinterkaifeck. She claims Adolf has been in a romantic relationship with Victoria, but when he found out about Andreas, he lost it. Um, his brother allegedly helps him murder Victoria and Andreas for revenge, what? then murder the rest of the household to ensure there are no witnesses. Um, police don't investigate this lead for 11 years. What? And by then, Adolf has already been dead for eight years. Yeah. And Anton is arrested, but he denies any involvement and no evidence is found connecting him or his brother to the murders. So he's held in custody for three weeks and then he's released without charges ever being filed against him. So all in all, the police interview more than 100 suspects. They explore every conceivable possibility from, you know, close friends and family to complete strangers, vagrants, and anyone in the vicinity with a criminal record. Shortly after their autopsies, each of the victims' heads were sent off to a medium in Munich to see if they could find any leads through the metaphysical realm, but that it provides no leads. The case runs cold and it is officially closed in 1955. Um, it's been reopened a number of times between 1955 and 2007, but much of the original evidence is either lost or like has been touched and held so yeah. much that they just can't help people anymore. Yeah. In 2007, however, the first and Feldbrook Police Academy decides to reopen the case. Um, some say it's like to actually relook at it and try to solve it. Another say it was just for this cold case is used as a sample case right. um, for for trainees to practice on. They have a theory. They look over everything and they have a theory. But because the person that they believe is responsible for the murders has long been dead. And of course, the Gruber family has long been dead. They decide not to release who they believe the everything, uh, all the evidence points to. Because um, they can't defend themselves. Right. And they, and because it would, the family um, still oh, lives in the area. Yeah. And so it would hurt their standing and reputation and there's it would never be able to be prosecuted so they decide to keep their theory a secret but but tell us please right i know quick text it's out of respect for yes you know the family members that are people that are close to the crime so basically it is believed that we will never know for sure who killed the gruber family at hank hinter kaifak farm and that is the legendary cold case of the Hinterkaifeck murders. Damn. I didn't know a lot of that. Me either. That is crazy. Good job. Thank you. I In researching this, I realized I have a true passion for a Germanic forest areas yeah. named after witches in any way you clearly this is clearly your, the direction your life is now going to go in i mean i'm happy for you thank you it feels great to know when something really moves you yeah 
That's a great feeling. Yeah, go go after your dreams. There is a overhead picture because so the farm's not there anymore. Uh-huh. They there is um there's like a memorial. Oh, and there and then it's just kind of big open field. But there's uh you can see online there's overhead photos. We'll post one. Um where the witch's wood is still right there. Mm. It's like a this weird little rectangle of forest just right there in the middle of fields. Creepy. What who planted that? Why is it there? <laughs> What's in the center? It's weird cuz I'm I'm listening to a a book right now like a scary ghosty book and in it uh in near the woods is this like rock formation called the devil's hand. Ooh. Which like fits that perfectly. Hold is on. it real? No, it's fiction, but it's scary. It's called Winter People. Okay. By Jennifer McMahon. Nice. Jennifer McMahon has a similar idea to my stairs that go underground, but hers just goes in a different direction. Up or down, pick one. Uh, Great job. Thank you. Uh, Needed to be told. Yeah. Let's see. I have to admit right now. Please. For a long time when people would tell us to do this case, um, there is another... A cold case that happened in Iceland mm-hmm. that I would always get it confused with. Okay. Um, so that'll never happen again. I promise you. <laughs> well, now as we my all podcasting know. partner and anyone else listening, <laughs> that this is what it's for me. This is what it's all about. I'm not one of those people with true crime that can or is interested in remembering dates uh-huh. or details in that kind of studied way that yeah. many people are. And God yeah. bless, right? Yeah. We just like hearing the stories. I like the story and I like to know what's possible. Yeah. And we like to tell a friend who's equally interested in the story about it. Yes. I don't need to know more than you about true crime. Not I at just all. Wanna he- I want to be told stories about it and I want to tell you the ones that fascinate and horrify me yeah. as well. I want to watch your eyes fly <gasps> open in uh, surprise and shock the way mine do. Yes. That's the fun part about doing podcasts like this. Yes. It's di- in all our years of paying attention to this. Do you know this one? Right. Yeah. Yes, I do. But I want to hear it from you. Yeah. Too, it's yes, like part exactly. of it also. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into, whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve. The key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But listen, speaking of, do you know things about other things? Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the history of the lie detector test. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Right? Yes, it is. It's adjacent. It's and it's controversial yeah. and it's been around. So I'm going to tell I'm going to talk about how it was invented and all that stuff. And then I'm going to tell some stories proving just how unreliable and terrible they are. OK, so the sources I used are the Science Museum in London, the American Psychological Association, um, a law info article written by Christina Majaski, the book Betrayal written by Tim Weiner. The Anti-Polygraph Blog, the National Registry of Exonerations, and a Journal of Forensic Psychiatry and Psychology article written by Don Grubin and Lars Madsen. Nice. All right, Karen. First lie detector test, like technically lie detector test, can be traced back to China circa 1000 BC. What? Yeah. (laughs) Not the kind we know today, but the idea of detecting lies through a thing. Suspected liars are forced to put a handful of rice in their mouth and then spit it out after a specific amount of time. The test is based on the idea that fear and anxiety cause decreased saliva. True. Which in, which in turn causes dry mouth. Yeah. Right. You know, and you you can tell someone's lying when they or high. Um, If they, if, so that if they spit the rice out after a time and it's dry, then that person's found guilty of lying and is sentenced to death. Unfortunately, this is not a very good lie detector and pretty much everyone's just killed. Yeah. Right. So the search. But I like the intention. Yeah. I like that they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. It's like cause and effect. This, this happens when this happens. So if this doesn't happen, then that's what this means. Yeah. Burn the witch. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Burner at the stake. The search for a way to detect lies continues. Many tests are created along the way. For example, with one test, a suspected liar sticks their hand in boiling water (laughs) and then removes it. And if their hand is injured in any way, they are a liar. Uh, Obviously, olden days. That's from... Who's I don't (laughs) know. Whose theory? (laughs) I, I don't know. So you... So unless you have mannequin arm... Yeah. Okay. What's well, the thing of like if the witch drowns when we drown her, she's yeah. a witch. Yeah, it's like well, you just killed a person. Yeah, either way, that's those are those people in charge just want to kill people. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. In the 1950s and 60s, the CIA experiments with LSD as a truth serum, mm. which sounds like a fucking nightmare. Yeah, for real. But like the dry rice, none of these tests are accurate in any way. As time goes on, researchers question whether or not there are any actual physiological signs of lying that we can't see with the naked eye, like increases or decreases in heart rate, respiration and blood pressure. And after multiple studies, researchers find out that, yes, lying does cause some changes that we can't see 
So the next step is to figure out how to measure these changes. In 1921, a policeman and physiologist in Berkeley, California, John A. Larson, is tasked by his close friend, Berkeley police officer, August Vollmer, to help find a scientific way to interrogate suspects, which you and I have both, of course, read about. Yeah, on the American Sherlock by Kate Winkler Dawson. Uh, the Exactly Right podcast, Tenfold More Wicked and Wicked Words. She is one of the best true crime writers there is. Yeah. If you if you haven't read American Sherlock, you really have to. It is it's mind boggling. This guy was at the source and center of so much stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's really good. So I, you know, so we already knew about this because we read. Because we can read. <laughs> Try it. So one of the reasons this police chief, August Vollmer, wanted this new method to find out if uh, like interrogation method is because his police officers can't stop using the barbaric technique known as the third degree. Mm -hmm. Remember the third degree and like old timey gumshoe stuff? Sure. Just be basically means beating the shit out of someone you suspect until they admit to doing it, which obviously doesn't fucking work and essentially just gets you a lot of false confessions and lawsuits. Yeah. So Larson uses the work of previous researchers to create a polygraph instrument. Basing it on the systolic blood pressure test uh, pioneered by psychologist William Moulton Marston, along with his wife, attorney and psychologist Elizabeth Holloway Marston, which I want them to come to every dinner party of mine. Can you imagine the Marstons at your dinner uh, party? The most fascinating couple in the fucking history of the world. Georgia, I love this gravy. Let me tell you about how I <laughs> cracked the case by getting this fucking lying criminal to admit that he was doing it. That's right. Long cigarette. Oh, really, cigarette in a holder. Of a fucking just dry martini. <laughs> yeah. All, multiple dry martinis. I feel like she... What was her first name again? Her name's Elizabeth Holloway Marston. Elizabeth Holloway Marston absolutely has cocktail onions in her martini. Cocktail onions. You're told. No twist. Mm -mm. I want my breath to reek. Yeah. Like I'm not, vodka. He, I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I'm Elizabeth Marston Hollis Winterfell. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so they create this machine that monitors and records a suspect's blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration all at one time. So the suspect is hooked up to the polygraph and is then asked a series of questions. Of course, they, we know we've all seen fucking Law and Order. Yeah. Normal questions. Hi, is your name Karen? What is that? Yes, no. Right. And then questions like, hi, you know, did you kill people or whatever? You have to say hi you every have time. To say hi. <laughs> it only works. Hi, it's me again. Hi. Um, just been sitting here this whole time. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Hi. This is your dog's name, George. Okay. Everyone's a big fan of Larson's lie detector and his protege, Leonard Keeler, oh. starts helping further develop the instrument. Although a big part of his motivation is to make a shit ton of money off of it by like patenting it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, He's like lies. That's the biz that yeah, you want to be in. Let's detect people. Yeah. So this dude, Leonard Keeler, helped set up the scientific crime detection laboratory at Northwestern, which is the first U.S. forensics lab. Yep. So uh, here's a little tidbit of information. Um, one of the students in his class, cartoonist Chester Gould, um, it said that he based his character named Dick Tracy on Leonard Keeler. Wow. Yeah. So that's the kind of guy he was, I guess. She. <laughs> 
All right. At first, Keeler makes the lie detector portable, then adds a galvanic skin response channel, question mark, which measures sweat gland activity. So oh. Scientists. Okay. Eventually, the FBI buys the um, his version of the polygraph instrument, and that serves as the prototype for the modern polygraph that we all know and love and hate today. So it's it has improved and gone digital today, but they still use the same technique and parameters as before. So, um, but it's still uh, still subjects' heart rate and blood pressure are assessed with a cuff. Uh, respiration is measured, all this stuff. But there's like a thing that wraps around your chest to test that. Skin conductivity is measured through electrodes on fingertips, all that fun stuff. Examiners still ask the same questions. Some are controlled. Some are like. Are they relevant? Whatever. And then when the questioning is over, the examiner goes over the responses and looks for patterns. According to the American Psychological Association, quote, a pattern of greater physiological response to relevant questions than to control questions leads to a diagnosis of deception, which is so silly. Like if someone asked me, did you kill someone? I feel like I'd panic and be like, no, yeah, I wouldn't be like chill about it. Right. And then also the people who are chill about it, who are most often murderers, sociopaths and psychopaths, they don't have those reactions. They don't have those feelings about it. No, they don't have consciences. Yeah. So according to the American Psychological Association, the main issue with polygraph testing is that there is, quote, no evidence to prove that any pattern of physiological reactions is unique to deception. So in the same way that everyone grieves differently, everyone fucking lies differently. (laughs) (laughs) You know that when I was like four years old, my mom told me she could tell when I was lying. Oh, right. Is the perfect trick. And then I just I was always like, yeah, I know. I should tell the truth. Yeah. But she probably didn't. She fucking didn't. How would she know? (laughs) But I was like, well, that's how I am. It's right there on my face. And then it like only year like when I was in high school and I lied the first time I like went to a party or something. I was like. She was lying to me. Yeah, that just worked. Yeah. What the hell? Mom. Basically, everyone's reactions are different. Another reliability issue is that people can, quote, beat a polygraph with countermeasures like, quote, simple physical movements, manipulating yourself to believe what you're saying, and the use of fun drugs. Yeah. Um, there are lots of videos and articles as well as manuals, and they're actual people whose job is to train someone how to beat a lie detector test. So they're like, hey, I have this test come lie detection test coming up. Can you help me? So now that people have figured out a way to make money on one side and then right there on the other. That's right. Put up your stand. Go right ahead. Sure. Even the Supreme Court has said, quote, there's no reliable scientific evidence about the accuracy of lie detector tests. However, they haven't banned polygraphs. It's up to the state to make their own rules about whether or not they're allowed in court. Most states just don't allow it to be admitted as evidence, but a handful of states do allow them, but only if both parties agree to let them be admitted. And if the judge rules the results um, admissible, which rarely happens. Hmm. So. They also used to be used like in um, in the job force. So like bank tellers, store employees and other workers who'd handled cash. Like if cash went missing, they could hook those fucking employees up to a lie detector and be like, did you steal that money? Yeah. So um, in 1988, the Employee Polygraph Protection Act was passed, which forbades testing in the private sector workplace. But it is still used in hiring by the CIA that 
um, FBI and the DEA, and also before anyone can get a security clearance by the government. Hmm. Right? Yeah. You know what this made me think of is, if I could give anybody one piece of advice, yeah. don't steal. <laughs> Just, it's such a problem. I thought you were going to say, ask for a lawyer and never take a polygraph. <laughs> no, just don't. That's better. You, it always, like, when you first start thinking about it, it's just like, this would be easy and I would get this thing. You're, the, what you open up yeah. is this world of doubt and people thinking you're a bad person. Yeah. Even if you like, I, I just remember da- I dabbled in this taking money out of the till yeah like and i did it twice i've told you the story a million times and immediately my boss at that coffee place was like i think the janitor and his (gasps) son are stealing and i was like all of a sudden i was just like oh my god what am i doing i was just justifying it to myself like i want to buy beer and i'm barely being paid anything it's like no 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 no. it doesn't work that way you can rationalize things all you want but at the end of the day you could be impacting somebody else's life horribly just by being kind of selfish and or lazy or whatever. And the shame, the shame you feel, I think of yourself. I stole a lot of stuff as an unruly teenager. Yep. And I still look back and I'm like, that's not the kind of person I want to represent myself. Correct. As. You, and and most of us deep down aren't really like that. But right. whether it's desperation or convenience, opportunity, whatever, just just take a step back. Because I swear to God, the problems that come up after. Yeah. A hundred times bigger than what you're taking. Totally. That's a hundred percent true. Okay. <laughs> this is, you didn't think that you're going to get lectured in the middle of a, <laughs> a lie detector test thing, but I really just, I think of the young people oh, and I just do. go, God, if you just like, just don't do it. Just don't. It's all Karen thinks about is the young people <laughs> and how to be a beacon of light. For because them. they give me so much on TikTok. Aww. I want to give something in return. Look at their dances and their lip syncs. <laughs> Beautiful. Awe-inspiring. Okay, there are countless examples now of how unreliable polygraphs are. Mm. So we just talked about this on the last mini. Between 1982 and 1984, 43 women had gone missing and or were found dead in the Seattle and Tacoma, Washington area. Many of these women were found near the Green River. So naturally, the serial killer responsible for these murders is dubbed the Green River Killer. In May 1984, Gary Ridgway is brought in for questioning, having been arrested in the past for soliciting sex workers, which made up the majority of the Green River victims. A polygraph is administered, and Gary is asked a series of nine questions, including, um, did you kill these women? And he totally passes the test completely. Yeah. It shows no deception whatsoever. He's a fucking lizard. He has no conscience that's right as a human being and because he passes the polygraph simply because he passes the polygraph he's cleared as a suspect completely (sighs) Um, police go back to focusing on a guy named melvin foster who's innocent but who failed a polygraph in 1982 so they go back to focusing on him Meanwhile, Gary keeps killing until he's caught by DNA in 2001. He's later found guilty of murdering 49 women and is sentenced to um, prison for life. Had the police not relied on that polygraph test and just cleared him as a suspect, at least six women would not have been killed. Horrifying. So he basically got a free pass after that and was like, just 
If there's one thing I want to teach you on this podcast besides don't steal, Uh you have to remember sociopaths and psychopaths are built totally different. Yeah. When they, when they are about to do something, you won't sense it. Mm -mm. There's a, there's a million stories on a million different podcasts, but you hear about it all the time of a person super nice chatting with you. He, yeah, he no one would walk you to your car. It, yeah. He was so unassuming. You'd never think you blah, blah. I'm so sick of hearing it. And yeah. then it's like, and then the second you go, Oh no, I'm not going to go there with you. Their eyes turned to inky blackness yeah. and they become the devil in front of you. It is this, that it, it's every true crime story yeah. and people have to remember it. Yeah. Don't believe anyone. Don't believe anyone ever, ever, ever. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to stop lecturing you during your own story. <laughs> oh, is this about me? I thought you were talking to the teenagers. <laughs> Shit. I'm talking to teens and ourselves. And they, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm, you know what it is? I had seven o'clock coffee. I was just going to say, that is a huge <laughs> mug and it is empty now. And not because you spilled half of it on the carpet. If I could give you all one piece of advice, <laughs> do not drink coffee after seven. It makes you lecture people. Karen turned into a lecture gremlin. And here we are. It's called being a professor. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Sometimes a truthful person will fail a polygraph. In 2006, Emmanuel Mervillis was arrested in New Jersey for armed robbery and aggravated assault. He offers to take a polygraph, being like, dude, I'm totally innocent. Let me do this. Let me do a quick lecture. Never fucking do that. No. Always ask for a lawyer, even if you're innocent. Stay away from polygraphs. That's right. And he then agrees that whatever the results are, they can be used at trial. So that's the only way they're like admissible in court Mm -hmm. if there is a trial, he says. So but he's like, well, I'm going to clearly be innocent. So there won't be. He takes the polygraph. He fails, asks to take another one, but he's denied. So at his 2008 trial, Lieutenant John Kaminskas testifies that he's, quote, never encountered a situation in, in which someone was showing signs of deception and that it later came out that they were truthful. So he's like, tells the jury, this is, a, there's, this is, a, he's lying and there's no and there's way no he's way. not. Okay. Yeah. So of course the jury believes him because he is lieutenant. And so they say Emmanuel must be lying. Um, and there's even witness testimony that Emmanuel was not involved in the robbery and assault, but he's still found guilty and sentenced to 11 years. Oh my God. In 2011, a New Jersey court reverses Emmanuel's conviction because the polygraph results were relied on too heavily. Two years later, he's retried and found not guilty. Um, and there's a ton of stories out there that are similar when an innocent person fails a polygraph and is wrongfully convicted based on that evidence alone. Mm-hmm. On June 12th, 1990, 97, John Arthur Ackroyd is giving a woman named Marilyn uh, a ride home. And during the drive, she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, John is dragging her from the truck uh, where he rapes her at knife point. So as soon as she's able to, she reports the rape to the police. On June 28th, she's given a polygraph. What? Yeah. The 30 plus questions she's asked include, do you actually feel you were raped as you described to me? And quote, is there something else you're afraid I'll ask Um, a question about even though I told you I would not like just fucking trying to get her to to show deception in some way. Right. And she she does show deception on four questions and she fails the polygraph test. Why the fuck would she have to take a polygraph test? That is question number fucking one. (sighs) 
So then John is questioned about the rape. He tells police that he did give her a ride home, but that basically she initiated the sex and it wasn't rape. He passes the polygraph because no charges are filed. He's free to keep attacking women and he quickly escalates to murder. Uh. So in 1993, John Aykroyd is convicted of the 1978 murder of Kay Turner and is sentenced to life in prison. He also pleads no contest to the murder of his stepdaughter. Thank God. Rashonda. John is also thought to be responsible for the 1992 murders of Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders, but he dies in prison before he can be charged. So the rape victim failed the polygraph. He passed and he is a fucking rapist and murderer. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sometimes failing a polygraph can lead to an innocent person falsely confessing to a crime they didn't commit. On April 8th, 1993, motorcycle shop owners Morris and Ruth Gager are murdered on their farm. And the next day, their son Gary discovers their body and calls 911. And since there isn't any evidence of forced entry, Gary's taken in for questioning and interrogated for 18 hours. Oh, my God. He's given a polygraph. The results are inconclusive, but the police lie to him and say that he failed it. So he starts to think that maybe he did kill his parents. I mean, after 18 hours, you're fucking delusional. Yeah. They get him to discuss a hypothetical situation, saying that maybe he did kill them during an alcohol-induced blackout. None of this is tape-recorded. It just um, and he doesn't sign a confession, but all these hypothetical statements are admitted in court as confessions. Um, and he's found guilty and sentenced to death. And then basically it just comes in 1995, federal authorities find out that two members of the outlaws motorcycle gang could have been the real killers. And it isn't until March 1996 that the appellate court rules that the hypothetical statements shouldn't have been admitted and a new trial is ordered. And later, the two outlaw gang members are convicted and Gary receives a pardon based on innocence from the governor. Good God. Yeah. So, yeah, the, it's fucked up. It's a terrible fucking thing that shouldn't be used anymore. To end on a high note, remember pioneering psychologist William Moulton Marston and his wife and our our best friends that go to our dinner parties? Yes. Attorney and psychologist Elizabeth Holloway Marston. Yes. So, uh, and they were the ones who studied a connection between emotion and blood pressure and lying. Well, they go on to create Wonder Woman. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yep. So he got a job um with like what's later DC Comics to help like I don't know with scientific stuff with characters. Oh. And they were both just huge feminists and w- women empowered people. Mm. And so they create this female superhero who debuted in 1941 and her magic lasso of truth yes is obviously a nod <gasps> to the lie detector which they helped create amazing that rules right i that i've never heard that connection before that's so cool isn't that random that's actually like the reason i got interested in the story is because i read that and i was like what in the actual fuck <laughs> so then i read more about it uh, and then also there's a book called the truth machine by dr jeff bunn if anyone wants to read more about that there's a lot of just crazy stories about how much it sucks and doesn't work yeah yeah and that is the history and some stories about the lie detector amazing that was great <sighs> thank you really because also we've heard about that a ton yeah but it comes up constantly. Yeah. 
and people are asked to take it or it comes into investigations, it seems like, that that I read about all the time. Well, it seems like people nowadays, at least smart people, think that it's a really great tool to use as an interrogation tactic. Uh huh. So if you're interrogating someone and you threaten the lie de- to, for them to take a lie detector and they are like, they they know they're not going to pass it. Yeah. Then they'll maybe confess. Like Chris Watts, that fucking horrible monster, actually oh, did yeah, that yeah. when they were like, "You're going to take a," you know, he knew he was going to yeah, fail huh. it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's really like if if you're a good investigator, you can utilize the threat or the deception that you know comes out of a lie detector as a tool to get a confession. Right. So that's the ideal, but a lot of times, of course, it doesn't work that way. Whew, wow, uh, that was great. Thank you. I want to stick the the mic out the window and see if we can hear California rain. I saw lightning through your blinds. Let's see if George might lose it. But let's see really quick if it's actually raining outside. Because this is the first rain in how long? Like a serious rain in a year and a half? Yeah. (gasps) It's pouring. Everyone in fucking Idaho wherever is like, fuck you. Yeah, they're like, we don't care. But here's the thing. We have a serious drought water issue in California. And we don't have seasons. Let's just get one nice thunder and lightning Ooh, strike. is this an ASMR podcast? I think so. I want to stick this out the window. Yeah, do it. Yank that whole thing. Let's just, you know what? I think it'd be nice to end this, end this show with just a little sound effects of real California rain. Thanks, Georgia. Oh, it's just lightning. You're my jack. Oh, it's about to go. Okay, ready? Wow. Wow. Good one. Thanks, you guys, for listening. We appreciate you. You know, rate, review, subscribe. And just, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And the fact that you have been with us the whole time has been a surprising and beautiful fact of our lives. And we'll be here for another 22. And men's 22. (laughs) Max 28, baby. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe.